Our scripture this morning is found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32 and 46 through 50. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, those are, uh, those are interesting words, to say the least. If you're, if you're listening there, it gets a, it gets a little bit complicated. Um, we're going to do our best to work through a few of some of these key issues in this text. Um, and we didn't even actually read all of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, but it's a, it's a complex passage, but actually the, the message that Matthew is trying to communicate is really fairly, fairly simple and, and to the point. Uh, it's a message that is uh, perhaps best summarized um, by one of my personal heroes, uh, Jim Gaffigan. Uh, I've shown this once before, but it's, it's worth a repeat. Let's, let's watch. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. <laughs> he, he better not. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Does anything make you feel more uncomfortable than some stranger going, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus? Yeah, I'd like you not to. <laughs> you could say that to the Pope. I want to talk to you about Jesus. You'd be like, easy, freak. I keep work at work. I have to admit, that was a good impression of the Pope. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I love that. I also kind of hate it just a little bit because he's, he's right, right? I mean, there's anymore, there's, there's nothing that makes people more uncomfortable in our culture than, than talking about Jesus. I mean, if it, really, if you think about it, like you could talk to your neighbors and coworkers, most of us, to most of our neighbors and coworkers about anything else, right? Like, you know, who you're voting for, right? And what a mess that is, or views on immigration or race, how your marriage is going, or, or parenting, or your investments. I mean, honestly, you could probably talk to most of them about their sex life before you could talk to them about, about Jesus. It, I mean, it's pretty amazing if you think about it, how how polarizing this rabbi from 2,000 years ago continues to be, right? 
You either love him or you hate him. And we see this over and over, and over again as, as we've been studying Matthew. If you're, if you're new here this morning, we've been studying Matthew for quite a while. Uh, and Matthew is one of the early, earliest source documents uh, on, on the life of, of Jesus. And, and for those of you who've been here, it, it feels like now we're, we're in the middle of Matthew, right? There's 28 chapters. We're in chapter 12 of Matthew. It feels like with every story, with every step closer to the cross, the response to Jesus gets more and more polarizing, right? More, more and more extreme, more and more in these, these opposite directions that, that people, they, they either want to follow him or murder him. They want, to give, they want to give him everything or nothing. They either worship him or, or they despise him. There's never, there's never any middle ground. I mean, are, are you noticing this as we go? And, and today, Matthew takes it one step further in the way that he puts these, these stories together. And, and what we're going to see this morning is that for, for all of us, Jesus is either the devil or your brother, which sounds a little ridiculous, I know, right? But that, that's what we see. Jesus is either the devil or your brother. Like those are the only options. This is how extreme it's become as Jesus gets closer and closer to his execution. And this polarizing truth remains true even today. And, and I, I realize, right, I, I can hear some of the objections to a statement like that, because for some of you, like, if you're, if you're not a Christian, first of all, let me just say, we're really glad you're here. We want this to be a place where you can uh, try to figure out who Jesus is with us, right, or who we believe Jesus to be. And, and if you're not a Christian, it's, it's probably a really good chance. It's not because you believe Jesus is the devil, right? It's not because you, you hate him, you despise him, you want to, like, just, he's like a terrible, horrible person, right? Um, most of us probably don't feel that way. And yet what we're going to see is that no matter how or why you reject him, the end result is the same. And he might as well just be the devil to you. But the, the, the truth is also there for those of us who are Christians that this kind of makes us uncomfortable because most of us don't feel like Jesus is a brother, right? I mean, you've been following Jesus for a long time. Either that, either that sounds just completely irreverent, right? He's the son of God. He's not my brother, for crying out loud. Or it just feels... Probably more for me, it just feels out of reach, right? I mean, God is, he's way over there. He's not, he's not proximate, he's not near, he's not close or loving like an actual true brother. Which makes this kind of a fun sermon to preach, right? Because five minutes in and most of us are either either offended or a little uncomfortable or, or maybe just confused, I guess, I don't know. Because um, no matter who you are, Jesus is either the devil or your brother and you have to choose. All right, so how are we going to tackle this this morning? Really just in two sections. First, how to make Jesus the devil, or, or to treat him as, as such, to think of him in those ways, to dis, discard him in that direction, and how to receive Jesus as your brother. So first, what does it look like to make Jesus the devil? Uh, so we've, we've got to enter into the story. Again, we're in chapter 12, um, beginning in verse 22, and we're going to try to work our way through all of this, even though there's some sections that we're just going to have to fly over for the sake of time. Um, and I know we just, we heard it, right, read. If you're listening, um, you probably like, if you're like me, it just sounds a little bit crazy, doesn't it, to hear words like this? Now, this isn't, this isn't the first time that we've read about or heard about, you know, 
somebody oppressed by a demon or Jesus casting out demons. And yet I've got to tell you, every time I read it, I'm always, my first thought is always like, really? Right? Really? Because the truth is for, for us, for our culture, I mean, we're just, we're trapped in it. We are materialists at heart, every one of us. And the truth is we only believe in what we can see, right? What we can experience. I mean, we'll, we'll believe in God because we can kind of keep him distant, right? Um, we can kind of sort of suspend disbelief and keep him way over there. But to think about some sort of spiritual realm or divine present within, within and around us, just, I mean, it feels like the weirdest chapter of Harry Potter, right? Just entertaining, but surely untrue, right? Now, every, every other culture including most places around the world today, have a category for the non-physical realm, for, for things that we just cannot see or, or fully be able to explain. And while we, we certainly wouldn't want to exaggerate it, right? We don't want to begin seeing demons or angels behind every rock. And yet we also, we can't eliminate it. I mean, first off, right, as we look at stories like this, it's clear that Jesus believed in a world bigger than what we can see, Right? And, you know, we tend to, like, go with Jesus, right? He certainly believed in a, in a world that's bigger. And also, if, if you do believe in God, which the majority of people on planet Earth do, you've already sort of said that, yes, there is this spiritual realm, right? And so it's not, a, it's not that huge of a logical leap to say that that spiritual realm can also be a little bit closer to home, right? And other beings such as angels and demons as a possibility. And then the last thing I'll say about this and I know this, this is like a purely existential argument, so you can do with it what you want. Um, but I, I read this quote this week, and it really, it really grabbed me because the, it centers upon the fact that, that sometimes it just feels like something, something's against us, right? That, 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 that it's more than just like bad luck or happenstance. And, and so one, one scholar writes, the existence of a tempter is an ongoing conviction, not just of Christianity, but also of Judaism. And this reflects more than anything else, a common experience. There does seem to be somebody out there laughing at us. I was very skeptical about the existence of Satan, as probably most of us are, right? Until I made that observation. The disasters that happen could be disasters, just be disasters, but we seem to be mocked by them. When I read that, I was like, yeah, that, it, it does feel that way. And again, I know that I mean, it's purely existential. I'm not trying to, to solve the tension that we feel when we think about angels and demons. But I at least want to bring a little bit of plausibility, right, to a difficult story um, to help us enter, enter into it. Okay, so you with me so far? All right. All right, so let, let's look at this, this story a little bit. It begins in verse, verse 22. We heard it read. I'm just going to kind of jump through some of the details here. So essentially what happens, right? Jesus casts out this demon, heals this guy. Everybody sees it. And the crowds are amazed. Of course, right? This is what we've seen over and over again. They see Jesus do something phenomenal. And they're like, yes, okay, this is the son of David. They're ready to declare him heir of King David at this moment, right? But the Pharisees, I mean, again, right? We just see these religious leaders over and over. Man, they hate Jesus, and they just keep hating him more and more and more. And it's not because they don't understand him. It's, it's, frankly, it's because they just want nothing to do with him, right? Jesus has claimed to be greater than the temple, greater than the law, greater than King David. He's claimed to be the only way to God, the only path to life and righteousness. The Pharisees have been there for all that. They've heard his messages. They're listening. They just don't like it. 
it's too much of a disruption in, into their life, into their, their way of thinking. They don't, they, I mean, frankly, like, it's not that they, it's not that they don't believe in Jesus in, in many ways. Like, they believe that he's someone special. They believe that he has phenomenal power. They've seen it. They've, they've encountered it. They just don't want anything to do with it. It's too much of an of a imposition on their life and their, their way of thinking. So they don't deny his power or his uniqueness. Instead, they write him off as an agent of the devil. Right? Did, you, did you hear that in there? You see that in the text? That, oh man, he just gets his power from Satan. That's kind of their, their dismissal. Not that he doesn't have power or that, that he's an imposter, but that he gets it from someplace else. Which of course, Jesus' response there is that's, like, that's the dumbest thing ever, right? Why would Satan cast out Satan? I mean, that's what Jesus said. Like, why would the prince of darkness bring light? Why would the destroyer of all things bring wholeness and, and life and, and restoration? That's what Jesus is getting at. And, and it doesn't make any sense to say that. And Jesus calls here what they're doing, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which, which he also says is the only unforgivable sin, which kind of sounds like a big deal, Right? I mean, there's actually there's something that's unforgivable, right? Well, what they're doing here, this, this unforgivable sin, it's such, it's such outright rejection of Jesus that they'd rather, they'd rather believe that he's doing things evil than good, right? That they, they'd rather attribute his power and authority to the demonic than to the Holy Spirit. And it's not, it's not that they can't be forgiven, it's that they, forgiveness is the last thing that they're interested in, right? It's not that they can't, they just won't, right? They don't want it. They, they want nothing to do with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in him. Which leads us to the first way to make a devil out of Jesus. It's probably the most obvious. It's just outright rejection, right? Uh, it's, it's the person, like in these stories, it's the person who says, oh, okay, I see it, I hear it, but I just don't care, right? I don't, I, don't, I don't want any of this, right? I refuse to believe. Because with the, with the Pharisees, their problem, really, it's not an intellectual one, but they kind of pretend that it is, right? They, they believe in Jesus, they just want nothing to do with him. And, and for us, for many of us at least, it's pretty easy to blame intellectual reasons for rejecting Jesus, and I, and I get that. I'm not saying this story is easy to believe, right? We, we all wrestle with doubts in, in, in different ways. But what this story does to me is at least if, if, that's, if that's you and you're, you're sort of pushing Jesus out or, or really struggling to, to believe, you have to at least ask yourself, um, is it really purely intellectual? Because it certainly wasn't with the Pharisees. There was more at work there. Have you, for example, have you actually wrestled with the claims of Jesus? Like for a moment, looked into them and taken them a little bit seriously. His miracles, the empty tomb, um, the hundreds of eyewitnesses, the fact that a bunch of cowards, right, who followed him, who fled at his execution, end up, ended up dying for their faith later on, who, who, who built and established a church that's found all over the world today, even where Christians continue to be murdered. And sure, there, there may be other explanations. Of course. Like the Pharisees. Ah, he's just using the power of Satan. I know these things are hard to believe. But some of us would just about do anything to explain it away. 
right? I mean, are you, are you following that? Like, I mean, maybe, maybe your reasons are intellectual. And I mean, again, I, I get that. And I'm sure for some of you that's true. But for others, like the Pharisees, it's really that you, you've just already made up your mind. You don't believe, not just because it's unbelievable, but because even if it were believable, you just would want nothing to do with it. I mean, a question for all of us to wrestle with, like, would anything, anything convince you to follow Jesus? I mean, think about that, especially if, if you're not a Christian. Would anything convince you to follow Jesus? And if the answer is no, that's what Jesus is talking about. You've already made up your mind. And it's not that you can't be forgiven. It's that you don't, you don't want his forgiveness anyway. And let me just say as well, for those of us who are Christians, it might be easy to like kind of wag our fingers at this moment. Like, I wouldn't do that, right? Um, but for even, even for those of us who believe, don't forget the areas in your life and in mine where outright rejection continues to reign, right? Where we're like, Jesus, you can have this part, but not this part, right? Where we, we think we can kind of get, a, get away with holding back on Jesus. Listen, partial acceptance of Jesus is still rejection, Don't miss that. Partial acceptance of Jesus is still rejection of Jesus. With him, it is all or nothing. He is either the devil or your brother. Which leads leads to the second second way we tend to make a devil out of Jesus. And this one is like perhaps like the real American way. This is like, this is just what we do. It's probably where I'd be most tempted, where I am most tempted. It's just passive indifference. Passive indifference it's maybe the person who says, you know, I'm not, I'm not rejecting it. I'm just not going to make a decision, right? It's like, I, I'll think about it later. Um, don't bother me now. All religions, are, I mean, they're kind of the same. And so it's, it's, a, it's the, quick, the quick dismissal. But look at verse 30. Because Jesus doesn't, he doesn't give us that option, does he? Jesus there in verse 30 connects outright rejection and passive indifference as essentially the same thing. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. I mean, you're either with them or you're against them. No, no middle ground here. And, and here's where you at least, you have to give the Pharisees a little bit of credit, right? I mean, you kind of have to, right? Because at least they're not passive about Jesus. At least they acknowledge, they can't just go around and say, well, he's a good teacher, Right? You know, he's got some great miracles. He's an inspiring revolutionary, right? Love it, everybody, kind of. At least they know, they take him seriously and they know that that option is not up to them, right? That good teachers don't say the kinds of things Jesus said. They know how polarizing extreme he is. And I know in a world like ours, it's just easier to say, you know, all religions are the same. It all works out in the end. And to very easily, quickly move on with passive indifference. I mean, it's kind of our default, I think. But the, the reality is, like, the, the only person who can say that hasn't actually considered Jesus. And hasn't actually looked into what he said and who he claims to be and who's, who his disciples claim to be. I mean, I think probably you probably can be passively indifferent towards towards every religion, except, except when you see who Jesus is. Like, he's just too extreme to be passive about. You, you have to make, make a choice. 
He always forces a decision. D.A. Carson, one uh, New Testament scholar, writes, the general thrust of verse 30 is straightforward. In our relationship to Jesus, there can be no neutrality. Failure to follow Jesus wholeheartedly is as dangerous as outright opposition. Listen, I hate to say this because I know that some of you here are genuinely wrestling with Jesus. Like really trying to figure out whether or not he's, he's the one you want to give your life to. I, I, I get that. I, and so I, I hesitate to say this, but you have to realize what Jesus is saying is that indecision is a decision. Like, like there's not a pass, right, for, for, being, for being passive. We, we want to remain passive. Many of us do. It's just simply not an option that he gives us. And I, that's hard. And again, even, even for those of us who are Christians, it can be easy just to say, well, that's somebody else's problem. But man, where are we passive to? Where, where do we tend to think that Jesus, we can get away with part giving Jesus part, not all, right? We'll give him Sunday mornings for an hour, but, but nothing else. Where, where are you still, where am I still passive when it comes to following Jesus? Partial acceptance is rejection. All right, one more way to make a devil out of Jesus. And then some good news, I promise. Well, the third way, we haven't read this part of the story yet, but the third way to, to approach Jesus, to reject him, really, is through self-centered manipulation. This is an interesting category for me. I know that we do this. It was interesting to see in the text how, how they did this. This comes out in, in verses 38 through 42 in particular. Again, we didn't read this part. Um, uh, but essentially what happens here is the Pharisees, they ask Jesus for a sign which is just kind of ridiculous, right? Because Jesus has been doing all kinds of signs, right? They've seen all of his miracles and they've just said, all your signs are demonic, but hey, you know what, Jesus, just prove it to us, right? Prove, prove that you're the son of God is, is, what they're, is what they're getting at. And of course, Jesus is like, what do you think I've been doing, right? And in fact, he even calls them out and he says, even when I fulfill the sign of all signs, he says, even when I'm dead and buried for three days and come back to life, the sign of all signs, even then, you Pharisees are going to reject me. I mean, Jesus knows where he's going, right? He's not confused at this point where, where his mission is taken. He knows. And even, he even gives the, the Pharisees this, this illustration, um, he, he says, he gives them an example of the Ninevites. Um, you might see that in there. Uh, the Ninevites, I mean, that's, that's like the story of Jonah and the whale and Ninevites were Babylonians. I mean, these were like the stereotypical, like the, the bad of the bad. Like these are, these are like the horrible, you know, godless. Or that's the mindset towards the, the Ninevites. They were doing terrible, terrible things. But Jesus said, even they, when they saw Jonah, who had been in the fish three days, just like I'm going to be in the ground three days, even they repented and changed. Even they believed. And then to top it all off, Jesus says, you know what, the Ninevites, at the day of judgment, they are going to stand by and watch you Pharisees receive judgment. Jesus is really good at making friends, right? I mean, it's a pretty extreme story, right? 
But I, but I think what's happening here or the ways in which we, I, continue to do this. It's sort, of, it's sort of the person I think who says, well, I'll follow Jesus if, right? And the list is, I mean, the ifs are, are endless and ever-changing, right? So I'll follow Jesus if he answers all my questions, if he quiets all my doubts, if he grants me three wishes, right? I mean, I'll, I'll follow him if, if, if my health gets better. Like if my job, my finances, my kids turn out okay, then, then I, like if Jesus does something amazing, right? If he proves himself to me in some big grand way as if the resurrection wasn't enough, then, then I'll follow. You know, in many ways, it may also be the person who, whether, whether realizing it or not, and this could be for any of us sitting here in church this morning, it could be for me, who only intends to follow Jesus as long as life is okay. I mean, you not realize it, right? Um, but but as, long as, as long as it doesn't fall apart, right? As long as Jesus continues to at least fulfill my, my basic wishes of a good and happy, decent life, right? But the moment real temptation comes, or you get sick, or something happens to your kids, and Jesus is only as good as his willingness to perform, as his willingness to make my life perfect. This also is rejection. So again, three, three ways that we do this, that we, that we reject him, that we make a devil out of him. And so before we move on, ask yourself, and I know, I know this, this feels extreme, doesn't it? But ask yourself, how am I most likely, whether you're a Christian or not, how am I most likely to make a devil out of Jesus? How am I most likely to despise him or reject him or push him, push him to, the, to the margins? Outright rejection, passive indifference, selfish manipulation. He's either your brother or the devil. Which will he be? Okay, anybody ready for some, some like good news at this point? Um, I certainly am. So let's, let's switch over here, kind of the opposite. How to receive Jesus then as your brother? And I know that sounds a little ridiculous too, doesn't it? I mean, it's just a little sacrilegious. How do we call Jesus, the son of God, the creator of all things, our brother? It feels like blasphemy, doesn't it? And not just sacrilegious, but far-fetched. As I mentioned at this, like, I mean, God, he's just, he's way up there. He's distant. He's out of reach. He's not, he's not close like a brother. He couldn't possibly love us like family, could he? Well, that's the beauty of what Jesus says here. I mean, it would be irreverent or far-fetched for me to call him my brother, except that Jesus calls me his brother first. Look, at, look again at verse 46. Jesus says, again, in the midst of all this arguing with the Pharisees and training his disciples, he says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he, he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now being, you know, brothers with Jesus, it doesn't, it doesn't mean we're all equals, right? It doesn't mean that he's buddy Christ, right? Like the uh, sort of the, yeah, you know, the whatever, um, He's still God and we're not, right? 
But even, even the author of Hebrews, right? Knowing, knowing how hard this is for us to believe, how impossible it sounds, he writes that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Just like let that sink in for a moment. I mean, this, this is the highest privilege of the gospel. The, the pinnacle of the good news of what Jesus has done for us, that he died and rose again and for, the, for that those who come to him, who are by nature enemies with him because of our rebellion, that, that be, our, like whose default position as, as humanity is to disregard Jesus as if he's the devil. Us, adopted in as family. I mean, there are all kinds of descriptions for what God has done for us, right? For what this good news is, all kinds of beautiful, powerful words like salvation and redemption, justification, forgiveness, reconciliation, all are beautiful, all are meaningful, but none, none quite like adoption. Because with, with adoption, I mean, it, just, it doesn't get better than this, people, because sons and daughters, we aren't just forgiven, right? They're, Sons and daughters are loved. They're not just tolerated. They're welcomed. They're not just given a pass. They're actually written into the will, right? Heirs of the kingdom of God, not just subjects, but royalty. With God himself as our father and Jesus as our brother. So how is this possible? Well, three, three quick questions for us to consider. I mean, if, if you long to be in this family, Long to experience the love and acceptance that only sons and daughters receive. Three questions. First, am I his disciple? That's like the most basic, simple, like, I mean, Jesus doesn't say this about anyone. He doesn't say it about the Pharisees, certainly. He doesn't say it just randomly about those who are in the crowds. He says it to his followers, to his disciples. If you want Jesus as your brother, you have to follow him as your king. I mean, not perfectly, Right? It's going to be imperfect for all of us. But to come to him in faith, to, to say, yes, I, I want my life to be characterized by your life. I want my identity to be your identity. And to say yes to Jesus, saying to him, I believe you, I trust in you. And, and, and really to say, I trust in you enough to obey you. Which feels like a big leap for many of us. Right, well, I believe, but I'm not going to do anything about it, right? That's more our mentality. But to believe enough to, to trust him, because that's, I mean, that's what Jesus says. That's the second question here. Is my life characterized by doing, doing his will? Because look, look again what Jesus says, right? He says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That if you're part of this family, and the only way to enter this family is through faith. It's not, it's not through obedience, it's not by being good enough. But if you're part of this family, the, the deal is you're going to begin to resemble your family. You're going you're to begin to, to look, you know, like the rest of the family. And the family resemblance is obedience to God. I mean, look at, look at Jesus, right? That's, that's who he is. And oftentimes we ask, like, well, what is, what is God's will for me, right? We wrestle with this, we think through this, but the Bible tells us most of it, doesn't he? Doesn't it? I mean, for example, it's, it's just a few spots. It's God's will that we give thanks in all circumstances. It's God's will that we become holy and avoid sex, sexual immorality. It's God's will that we do good in the midst of op opposition, that we act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God, etc. right? There's lots of places. 
And the highest example of God's will, I mean, Jesus tells us in John 6. He says there, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Do you believe? And that's what God wants for you. And if that's true, right, you're his disciple, you you intend to follow him, then you've got to ask yourself, like, when I look in the mirror, do I see the family resemblance? Am I beginning to to pick up the traits of of Jesus, my brother, and God, my my father? And it's not not that you look good and then then God adopts you. No, but when when we join his family through faith, we take on the customs of the family, we begin to live like, like we actually do belong. We do, we do his will. And then finally, the last, last question. Have I made his family my family? Because, man, we worship family, don't we? I mean, I think that's probably a, a universal thing, but it feels especially unique for us sometimes. The way we worship family, man, we love it, right? And, and family, family is important. I love my family, but family is an idol for many of us. It, it often becomes an idol for me. And every, like everything is right there, centered right there. But what Jesus is saying is we have a new family that trumps even the old categories of nations and tribes and nuclear families. Something that, that supersedes it, right? And, and it's, not that we, it's not that we devalue our earthly nuclear families. Of course not. In fact, I love, I love how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, when I, shall, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest... I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. I mean, are you following that? It's not that we love our families less. It's that when we learn to love God more, we actually learn to love our families better in the meantime. That when we, when we have properly ordered loves, we can love better those around us. Have we embraced the family that he has for us? It's much bigger than just the people who live under your roof. For the church is meant to be a family of families and there is no family like his family. Whether you're married or single, whether you have kids or not or your kids are, are grown, whether, whether you've had a, a terrible family history yourself, and I know many of you had, you've, struck, you've never had a really great family experience. Let me just say, we long to be a family for you. Imperfect, of course, like any other family. And we, we've got a long ways to go in living this out, but if you're with Jesus, you're with us. And we long, we long to commit to you and we long, we long for you to commit with us, right? With God as our father and Jesus as our brother. You know, and thinking of these, these categories, right? And thinking of Jesus as our brother, it made me think this week, the story of the prodigal son. It might may be familiar to some of you, others of you, maybe, maybe it's not, but essentially the story of the prodigal son, right? It's, it's that this, this, uh, this brother, the younger brother, he runs off, right? He runs from the father, and Jesus is telling, telling this story. Uh, it's, it's a parable for us, for our sin. And the, the brother, he's like, you know, dad, forget you. Give me the inheritance. And he goes off and he squanders it all, right? He lives in self-centered debauchery, essentially, right? He wants nothing to do with his father. And Jesus is telling us, that's, that's what sin is, right? That's what we do. We run from him. But in that story, right, in the crowds that Jesus is telling, he's telling it to both disciples and the Pharisees. And he gives them a picture of the Pharisees. He says, that in this family, there's an older brother, who wants nothing to do with it, right? Who laughs, who's just self-righteous and judgmental, who looks at the younger brother and wants nothing to do with him. He says, and Jesus is saying, that's the Pharisees. And frankly, that's, that's what many Christians end up looking like. Oh, I'm good. I've never done anything wrong. So God has to love me. 
But what's so beautiful about what Jesus says here in Matthew is that Jesus, he's the brother we need. Not not the one who looks down at us with self-righteous arrogance, pointing fingers, but no, we, friends, we have a brother who comes after us, who, who came chasing us down, who enters the pigsty or the brothel or the place of greed or lust or anger or whatever it is who actually comes after us. Even though we reject him, even though we often want nothing to do with him, he says, Come back home. The Father is waiting, longing, hoping for you, waiting there with open arms, always watching for your return. Friends, Jesus is the brother we need. A brother who comes after us, who entered into this world, who died for our forgiveness, who rose again for our life and invites every one of us home. And so yeah, Jesus, I mean, he's... I, He's either going to be the devil in your life or your brother. And you have to choose. Let's pray. God, I, I pray that in the midst of um, what feels like a very extreme passage, so polarizing, It's easy for us to, easy for me to pretend that I'm in neither category or, or at risk of being. And so, so, God, I pray that you'd show us how easy it is for us to reject you and to scorn you, to push you aside as if you're, as if you're just nothing. And God, we do that for those of us who are Christians and those of us who aren't. God, I pray that you would forgive us, help us to see how you invite us into something better. And God, we thank you that Jesus, you, Lord Jesus, you are the older brother we need who comes after us, who rescues us. And God, I pray that in this family, we would find life and joy. God, that we would realize that we have been fully accepted into your kingdom. God, that you, you love us as if we are your own natural brother, that you see us as you see your own natural son. You see us as if, you, as if we're Jesus with his righteousness and goodness. God, I pray that in this family we would find joy and that together we would worship you. We pray this in Christ's name.